The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Let's begin together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we give thanks for this day. This is the day that you have made and Lord, we rejoice and we are glad in it. God, we give thanks for who you are. We give thanks for your Son. We give thanks for your Spirit that empowers us, that lives within us. And we ask that that Spirit would illuminate us this morning, would give me the gift of preaching, and would bless us anew with eyes and ears to see and hear your gospel afresh. We give thanks to you, God, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, thank you for being here with us today. I want to welcome our college students. There's quite the crop over here, so glad for you all to be here this morning. Good to have you with us. Um, Laura and I were on vacation, so we were gone last Sunday, so it is good to be back with you this morning. And there's somebody else who it is good to have back with us, and I wanted to welcome. It is the incomparable B. Sprouse is here with us. If you don't know B or her story, you should spend some time with her, but she and her husband owned this very property for 30 years in 2017. They had Edmund Christian Academy here. And so were it not for B's generosity and faithfulness and wonderful spirit, we would not be sitting here this morning. So let's give B thanks and a round of applause. Amen. We're continuing Luke, the spirit-powered gospel this morning, and we are in chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. It's kind of a long passage, so I want to invite you to strap in, to focus in, and follow along as I read through our text for us. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were 
amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. That seems like a counterintuitive truth, doesn't it? You would think that the opposite would be true, that a hometown crowd is supposed to be pretty receptive. And yet, that familiarity and that proximity of the hometown crowd may be precisely what blinds them. It may be precisely that proximity and familiarity that causes them to reject what they're hearing, especially if it doesn't live up to their expectations. For instance, uh, Ricky Nelson, the musician, learned this lesson at Madison Square Garden in 1971. He grew up from Madison Square Garden just about 30 minutes away, so in many ways this was a hometown show. It was the rock and roll revival in New York City. He was sharing the bill with Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and other greats. And if you don't know Ricky Nelson, he grew up in the music scene as kind of a teen idol with this sort of rockabilly style. But over a couple of decades, he had matured into kind of the, a pioneer of the country rock genre. He was really a forerunner to the Eagles in many ways. And so that night, October 15th, 1971, he gets up for his set and he starts out with some of those old rockabilly hits. And he plays a few of those, but about three or four songs into the set, he switches over and starts to play that new country rock music. He does a cover of a Rolling Stones song. And at the end of the song, he hears booing. Hometown crowd, dream of a lifetime, Madison Square Garden. And he is so shaken by this that he cuts his set short. He plays a couple more songs and leaves the stage for the night. Now the irony is he wrote a song about this experience called Garden Party that went gold and launched him back into the top 40. But while nobody was trying to throw him off the side of a cliff, 
He learned that night in some small way that no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, that that proximity and familiarity may be precisely what blinds them, particularly when their expectations are not met. And this is what Jesus sees in Luke chapter 4. And Luke set, sets this up in a really stark way as well in verses 14 and 15 by telling us how Jesus has generally been received. He says, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. That Greek word for report is actually fema, or essentially where we get our English word fame. And so Jesus' fame is really preceding him. It's spreading around the region of Galilee, and he's teaching in the synagogues. He's gaining followers, and his career's on the up and up. He's probably going to get a book deal and an Oprah tour soon, and things are going well, which makes the episode in Nazareth all the more stunning. Jesus gets to the Nazareth synagogue, his home church essentially, and he calls for the scroll of Isaiah. He begins to unroll it, and this actually might have taken a little bit of time because these were huge scrolls. Like Isaiah, 66 chapters. He couldn't just call it up on the screen in an instant. And so he's unrolling the scroll, and the crowd is waiting with bated breath, and he gets all the way down to chapter 61, finds his place, and he says famously, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then they began to say, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So in the chapter before this, Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And then at the beginning of chapter four, the text that Malia read for us, the Holy Spirit, it says that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 14, Luke says, Jesus is filled with the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Spirit, Spirit. Do you see why we named this sermon series what we did? This is the Spirit-powered gospel, and everything Jesus does is infused, energized, and invigorated by God's Holy Spirit. And what has the Spirit done this morning? Jesus says that the Spirit is upon him and it has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So what Jesus is saying is simply, he is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. 
He is the Holy One of God, the Messiah that has been talked about and prophesied and predicted to come and save God's people, to enact God's salvation, to restore Israel once again. Jesus is saying, I'm here. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. I'm bringing release to the captives, good news to the poor. I am the anointed holy Christ. But he's also saying something else. When he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Those are Jesus' first recorded in the Gospel of Luke public words. Today. He's saying that today is the dawn of a new era. Today is the beginning of the kingdom of God. Today is the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor. A new era has dawned. And when he talks about that year of the Lord's favor, he's actually calling us back to Leviticus 25. So Jesus is calling us to Isaiah 61 and also to Leviticus 25 where we talk about the Jubilee year. And you may have heard of this, but this was every 50 years, the Israelites were supposed to remit all debts. Every debt was paid in the Jubilee year. Every slave, every indentured servant was set free in the year of Jubilee. Now, sadly, this wasn't really followed in Jesus' day. By his day, people had been kind of neglecting it, and the year of the Lord had become just kind of a religious buzzword. But Jesus is saying, today, it actually begins. Today is the year of the Lord's favor when the oppressed go free, when the blind receive sight, when all debts are remitted because I am the Holy One of God and it begins now. So how do people respond? We get that in verse 22. Luke says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? This little question seems mostly innocuous at first sight. The, The first probably 10 times I read this passage, I just thought that question was kind of a continuation of the amazement, that they're saying, wow, he said all these wonderful things, and how could that be from Joseph's son? That's amazing. But I think there's actually something a little more subtle and even sinister in this question. You see, the way that it's worded, this question actually amounts to an objection to Jesus. They're saying, wow, listen to these amazing words. Listen to this incredible offer, but isn't this just Joseph's son? Can he really make this offer with authority? Isn't this just the local neighbor kid? Isn't this just the son of that local carpenter? Is not this Joseph's son? And isn't that a little bit like the way Jesus is often received in our day. You know, Jesus obviously isn't from the West, 
but Christianity has kind of grown up here in certain ways over the centuries, and it's become a little bit of a hometown for Jesus. And yet, we've become kind of a post-Christian, secular Western culture. And so, in many ways, we receive Jesus similarly to that Nazarene synagogue. We say, I love those words. We, we love Jesus' amazing words. We love what he speaks, but isn't this just Joseph's son? You know, we have our own version of this question. You know, we say, isn't this just a man? You know, wasn't Jesus really just a historical figure who lived and died and kind of inexplicably this fraudulent religion grew up around him? You know, isn't this just a human being at the end of the day? And could he really make that offer? I love his words, but can he really have authority over me? Because his words are amazing, and the gospel is powerful. His message is powerful. Many agree on this. And so we, we feel that we have to respond to the gospel, and I think in some ways our culture is afraid that the gospel might be true because it would mean we have to actually build our lives around it. We're afraid of the gospel being true because it might actually call us to take up our cross. We're afraid of the gospel being true because we might look a little silly believing it. We're afraid of the gospel being true because our comfortable hometown construal of things might not survive its radical reformation. So as long as Jesus is just a man, as long as he is just Joseph's son, as long as I can maintain my principled agnosticism, as long as I don't get to see any of those Capernaum miracles that I hear tell of, as long as he doesn't clear my personal bar of empirical proof, I can write him off. He's just a man. Isn't this Joseph's son? And yet Jesus anticipates our skepticism. Jesus hears it rising in our hearts. He hears it in our world just as he heard it in the hearts of that Nazarene synagogue. And so he anticipates that. And he talks of these Capernaum miracles that he thinks people will expect. And he talks about uh, re being rejected in hometowns as a prophet. And then he tells two interesting stories from the Old Testament. He says, but the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. It took me a while to see what was going on in this part of the passage as well because at first it kind of looks like Jesus is limiting God's salvation. 
Doesn't it, it kind of looks like he's saying, well, we just helped this one person here and this person here. But notice the really key detail in these stories. Notice this detail of nationality. Because he says, Elijah didn't go to an Israelite widow. Elijah didn't go to a Jewish widow. Elijah went to that Sidonian widow at Zarephath. And Elisha didn't go to an Israelite leper. There were plenty of them. But Elisha went to Naaman the Syrian leper. And not just any Syrian leper, actually the commander of the enemy army, the commander of the Syrian army, that's the attention that was paid by Elisha. And so you can start to see why the people in the synagogue were furious at this because they believe that God is saving the wrong people. In Jesus' interpretation of these prophetic stories, he's saying, look, the person that you think doesn't deserve salvation, the person that is furthest outside the boundary, outside the group, that's where salvation's beginning. That's where God is reaching out to. He's not limiting salvation. He's expanding it beyond the borders. And so they're furious at this. This is a difficult message for them to accept because Israel is supposed to receive God's salvation. Remember, God is supposed to pour out his blessing on Israel. He's supposed to pour out wrath on these pagan, wicked nations. But Elijah goes to a Sidonian widow. And Elisha goes to a Syrian leper. And it's precisely the last person we want to see saved. That's where salvation begins. Neuroscientists have studied the physiology of genocide. How someone can commit such atrocious acts. How one people group can do that to another people group. And what they've found is that when we empathize with someone, there's activity in this part of the brain that's right between your eyes, the medial prefrontal cortex. And right between the eyes, when we look at someone who is suffering, that's the part of the brain that lights up. That's where activity is. And what they found is that when we look at someone suffering who is like us, who is similar to us, familiar, then it really ramps up. Lights up like a Christmas tree. Lots of empathy, lots of activity. But when we look at someone who is different from us, when we look at someone suffering who is in the out group, who is an outcast, who is not like us, less activity, less going on, diminished empathy happening. So ingrained are the effects of sin and death and division and hatred that even our subconscious, even our brains 
want to draw a circle around who deserves our compassion. Even our very brain chemistry wants to draw a circle around who deserves our love, more so who deserves God's salvation. We want God to start with someone like us, namely us. We want God's salvation to begin where it's comfortable for us, where it's familiar and like us. But Jesus, in fulfilling the Old Testament, says that that's not where salvation is happening. He says that it can't be contained. It's expanding. That salvation is going to the Sidonian widow. It's going to the Syrian leper, not just the Israelites. This is the message of the Gospel of Luke. This great reversal of the kingdom of God that the oppressed are being set free. The ones who are captive are being released. And the good news is going right to those people that you think do not deserve it. You know, normally a preacher like me might end a sermon like this by asking a question like, who is your Sidonian widow? Who is your Syrian leper? And I think that's a, an important question. But I actually think there's an underlying truth powering that question that if we don't realize it, we'll fail to act on the question. And that underlying truth, I think, is this. You are the Sidonian widow. You are the Syrian leper. You, me, we are the Gentile sinners so far from God's people, so far removed from the group that God has crossed every boundary to bring us that salvation. That we could never possibly deserve it. But that we are the oppressed who has been set free and therefore must go set others free with the gospel. That we were the blind who have now received sight. We are the poor who have received the good news and now must share that good news with the poor. And it seems that the prophets and Jesus would tell us that precisely where you don't want salvation to happen, that repugnant cultural other, that's where you need to begin. That's where you need to look for the face of Jesus and remember that he has proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor for all. That's a dangerous truth. That's a truth that, according to our text, makes people homicidal. And indeed, Jesus has died for that truth, and he's been raised again to new life to break every chain of the oppressed, to set all the captives free. And that begins with us knowing this truth and then acting on it. 
that begins with us loving this truth and knowing that we are loved by Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God. Church, let's begin by praising the God who saves those who are farthest from him. Let's stand together and sing.